Okay, we are in the very, very last chapter of Isaiah chapter, I mean of Isaiah. It's chapter 66. Um, and as I said last week, when we looked at Isaiah 65, there's 25 verses in 65, there's 24 verses in 66. There is not time to go verse by verse by verse, uh, just simply because it would take us an hour or so. And we don't have the luxury of that kind of time. But I do want to focus on a few truths that God has put on in my heart as I read this. So turn with me to Isaiah 66 and read with me just the first two verses. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Um, If we look at this in context, if we look at this chapter in context with all of the rest of the book of Isaiah, we are looking at the final statement of the prophet that God put on his heart. And if you remember, as we've looked at this, Isaiah is writing 250 years before the exile takes place and the people, I mean, and the people are are living in exile and these words are being written about that time. So it's it's a prophetic word that God is speaking. And it is a word that God wants those people to hear. But he's talking to the people of his current time as well. And it also speaks to us. This is a truth. The, the truth that's found in this chapter is just as applicable today as it was back thousands of years ago. And what is God saying in these first two verses but this? He's not saying, I don't want you to build me a place of worship. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you need to focus on what you're doing. You need to recognize what you're doing. Because what you're doing is you're saying, you're giving me a place. Well... If indeed you were giving me a place, wouldn't that mean you'd have to make your own rocks? And you'd have to make your own cement or mortar. And you'd have to somehow fashion that out of nothing like I did. And then give it to me because then you're giving me something that wasn't mine to begin with. So... There's a there's a sense in what what he's saying. It's not that I don't want your adoration. It's not that I don't want your worship. It's not that I don't want you to do this. But I want you to have the right heart about it. I want you to understand that as you are offering this to me, recognize to whom you're giving it and where it's where where you got it and how you're giving it back. Look at verse 2. It says, "This is the one to whom I will look." God speaking. "I will look to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word." 
Now, if we were to continue on, we see in verse 3 this really weird thing. It says, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He, he who uh, presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense is like one who blesses an idol. And this particular verse, um, as I was reading it, I, I read out about the eight different commentaries. And nobody agrees on what this is supposed to be saying. So this particular interpretation is the best that the scholars who were doing the English Standard Version could come up with. But basically what this is saying, and, and the consensus of what I got from the scholars, was God is not saying there's anything wrong with the sacrificial system. But he is saying, those of you who are currently participating in the sacrificial system, I want to look at your heart. Because if your heart is not right before me, then when you slaughter an ox, I see it in the same way as if you were killing somebody or murdering somebody. When you are sacrificing a lamb, which is prescribed in the Torah, if your heart isn't right, I see it as the same as you just breaking a dog's neck. Has no, has me no meaning at all. It's just, you just killed a dog. There's nothing important to it. If I see you presenting a grain offering or a frankincense offering, it's detestable to me. If your heart's not right. And God also says, as we continue on down through this, and again, we don't have time to go verse by verse by verse by verse. But as we go down through this, God specifically says, there is a line drawn in the sand. I will not receive worship or praise or adoration or any kind of sacrifice from unclean hands. I just won't. Um, if you look at verse 17, this is a really weird one. And I wanted to point it out to you because if you're reading it on your own later, it's, you're not going to understand it because you won't understand the background. Those who sanctify and purify themselves. Sanctify means to set yourself apart for holy purposes. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into gardens following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination and mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. Scholars don't have an exact understanding of what specific practice this might be talking about, but it is not worship of Yahweh. Okay? If you recall... There was, there was, we talked about it uh, numerous times over the last number of months, but there was practices of worshiping the Baal and practice of worshiping Ashtoreth and, and practice of worshiping Molech, where they literally were doing things that were vile and detestable in God's eyes. And what God is saying here is there were those, verse 17, there are those who, quote unquote, set themselves apart for holy purposes and, quote unquote, purify themselves as they go into their gardens they're places of worship, following whatever that one that's in the midst, following their leader, okay? So there's the, the, it, I hate to say it this way, but this is the, what I have in my mind. Imagine pagans wearing their cloaks, coming into a big circle in this dark wooded area, and the priest or priestess stands in the middle and leads them in whatever 
worship that they have to do. And they're all focusing on her so they can imitate whatever things she's doing to worship their deity. And God says, it shall come to end together. Period. There is going to come a point where I'm not going to put up with it. And it's going to be over with. And then it comes into... Well, I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but in verses 7 through 14, God, through this prophet Isaiah, speaks a word that says something miraculous is about to happen. Something you don't fully understand, where it's literally, I'm going to birth a nation even before the labor pains started. It's as if the birth takes place as the labor pains start. And you think it's something I can't do? I can do it. Now, many, many different scholars have different interpretations What I thought of, and I didn't have a scholar say this, this is just an image in my mind. What I thought of when I first was reading this was, wow, I wonder if that could be possibly referring to when the nation of Israel came back into being in 1948, or whatever it was, 47, 48. And now, in an instant, God birthed the nation. But as I was reading, what many, many, many scholars think this is, is that the time of the temple sacrifice was waning. In the way that God was relating to human beings. And the time of the Messiah was coming. Where God was no longer going to meet with people in a specific location. But that God's Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And every human being would have access to God 24-7 by simply turning their heart to God. And what this is, what some scholars believe this is actually talking about is the Acts chapter 2 time when the poor, the Holy Spirit of God is poured out at Pentecost and the church is birthed and the way that God relates to humans completely changes because the sacrificial system never got reinstated after that point. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed and they've never re- resurrected it in 2000 years. Now, we do know from what we read about in end times as, uh, writings that some form of sacrificial system has to come back into place. We don't fully understand all of it. Some people say that they think that they're actually going to build a temple back up on the Holy Mount and that the sacrificial system is going to start up again and the Ark of the Covenant and the whole thing's going to be there. I haven't a clue. That's not my area of expertise. But what I do know is that in the 2000 years, 2000 plus years since the time of Christ, God has never saw fit to resurrect that. The temple sacrificial system seems to have died out. And the, the question then comes, why? Because God doesn't God still want to have relationship? Doesn't God still want to have? And the answer then to me is, yes, of course. And how, well, I mean, why did it not get resurrected? Well, because Christ died on the cross. His blood shed was then sufficient for all. Jesus, as Elsie just said, Jesus said, it is finished. Now, I am telling you my thoughts. This, this is not what scholars are all saying, definitively what happened. But this, as I've read and as I've chewed on it, as I've prayed about it, this is what I'm seeing. And this is how I'm understanding Isaiah 66. And then in the last bit of this, as we're coming from chapters uh, eight, I mean, verse 18 down to 24, we're now looking at, through the prophet's eyes, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem coming. And it says in these verses that God is going to draw 
all people from all over the earth. But what's interesting is if you look at verse 18 and then verse 19, it says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see me and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, a sign among them. See this cross standing right here, a sign among them. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations. And then they name some places. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord. And some of them, verse 21, and some of them will take, I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And what I see in this is God totally changing the way that he relates to people. This to me is the reconciliation of why there's an Old Testament and why there's a New Testament. This is saying God has changed the way that he relates to people and he is now sending those of us who have the the right relationship with God out to the part, farthest parts of the world to bring that message, that sign that God now chooses to relate with human beings one-on-one through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And a time is then coming, verses 22 and 23, when the new heavens and the new earth will come. And you'll get a new name. And everyone will come. All flesh will come to worship before me. And to me it's a glorious, wonderful way to wrap up this 66 chapter long prophetic message from Isaiah. Except verse 24. I'm going to let you read it for just a second. Just look at verse 24. I'm going to read it out loud. You just get a mental image. And they, this is the people who have come to worship from all over the world. They shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the people who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Amen. Ew. You know, the picture that I had, and I truly thought about getting an image and putting it on the screen, but I felt better about it, thought better about it, was the piles of bodies outside of Auschwitz. And the gore. And if you've ever seen films of where people had to be buried in a mass grave with bulldozers just pushing them into piles. And I'm thinking, God, why in the world? Why in the world after this glorious, glorious, I'm going to honor anybody who has humbleness and contrite heart and trembles at my word and they are going to have a special relationship with me and they're going to have the the message of truth that they can proclaim to the world so that all flesh will come and worship me and we will have a new heaven and a new earth and God will reside with humans And just before you come into all that glory, you can look at that vile, nasty, and that's the last thing that prophet felt God wanted him to say. And it leaves me sick in my stomach, literally. Why in the world, God? Because for me, I want to, I want to focus on your love 
and your grace and your mercy. That's the truth, right? I mean, I now have a new relationship with God because of the blood of Christ. I am now a child of God. I have all the rights and privileges of a child of God. I am a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? And that's the message of life that I want to proclaim. But as I walk into that glory with God in the new heaven and the new earth, I'm forced to walk by and look on those who refused the grace, who are now in torment, who are now a pile of flesh where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. And see, that's the problem with our culture's way of evangelizing. 150 years ago, preachers didn't have a problem saying you're going to go to hell. But today, you're intolerant. Today, you don't show the love of Christ. I can remember a number of years ago, back in the 90s, there was a television show called Dharma and Greg. And there's this one episode where Greg was trying to become more spiritual and become more in tune with himself. And he has a stack of all these religious books and he's trying to go, and his wife Dharma comes and says, what are you doing? And he says, well, I'm trying to get in touch with my spirit and my soul. And he said, and she picks up the Bible and says, like, he picks it up. He says, like, look at this, look at this. This is so hard. And she said, it's easy. And she holds the Bible in her hand. She says, it's real easy. Old Testament, don't mess with God. New Testament, God loves you. Done. what the world sees. It's no longer about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's now about Jesus and he loves you. And he welcomes you freely. Everyone is welcome. And, and if you recall a number of, short number of years ago, there was a prominent Christian pastor in the United States who wrote a book called Love Wins. Everyone comes. Everyone wins. Everyone wins. God will never cast out anyone. Mm. Then why did Isaiah feel that 24 needed to be left at the very last word of his prophecy? And so as I look at this and I try to reconcile it with myself, what I, what I hear God saying, what I read from other people, but what I hear God saying is, is this is not a game. This isn't all fluff and stuff. This is real. There are certain standards that must be met. There are certain parameters that must be met. There are certain lines that must not be crossed. Yes, God has given every human being a freedom to choose. You can choose God or you can choose not to have God. But it is not going to be a bunch of fun drinking beer and having a great time with your buddies down in the place that's not with God. It's a place of torment. It's a place of horror. It's a place of death. It's a place of never-ending death. It's a place of complete and total separation from the one and only one who could rescue you. If you go back to the story in, uh, in the Gospels where Jesus talks about Lazarus, the beggar, and the rich man. 
And there's that point in time where the rich man cries out from Gehenna, from Sheol, Please send someone just to give me just a drop of water on my tongue. Please! There's nothing can be done for him. It's too late. Then he says, Well, at least send somebody to tell my brothers so that they don't end up here. And the word was, they have the Bible. If they won't listen to that, there's nothing else we can do for them. Exactly. And so, what I hear God saying to us as we close out this time of Isaiah is we serve an awesome, powerful, mighty, glorious God. We experience the power of God this morning, the presence of God this morning. An awe, a holy, quiet hush fell on this place. It was not manufactured. It was not manipulated. We didn't do anything other than worship. And he came and made himself known to us. And yes, that's glorious. And I love it. And I want to be part of that forever. But that same glorious, holy, awesome God will not welcome sinners into his presence. Period. And... We have a responsibility to carry the message of life to the people that we come in contact with. And the full message of life, the full message is, there's death. If you reject your only hope, there's death. And you need to know that. It's not that I'm unkind. It's not that I'm intolerant. It's not that we're exclusive. It's not anything other than, this is the word of God. I can't change it to make it better for you. It's the same for all. Every single human being has the same line that they have to come across. Every single one of us. And the Bible very clearly says there will be some who don't. Out of their own stubbornness. Out of their own self-will. And I can't do anything about that. But I can continue to speak the truth to people. And I tell you, I'm a pastor. And it's not easy to speak those hard words. It is not. But if you don't, you're not giving them the full story. So this is this is where I'm at in my own in my own thing for us this morning. I want you to just spend some time reflecting. I want you, if necessary, there are two kneeling rails for you to come and spend some time with the Father if necessary. If you're physically unable to kneel, then come and set yourself aside and just get before God and say, examine my heart. We started this service with Psalm 51. If nothing else, take Psalm 51 out and read through it as a prayer and say, Lord, just look inside of me and see if there's anything in me at all that would cause you to be unpleased. Do indeed, God, in the in the words of Isaiah chapter 66, verse uh, 2, do I indeed have a humble and contrite spirit? And do I indeed tremble at your word? And then as you step up to take this communion, which is a symbol of your union with the Father, as you walk away, you carry with you, symbolically, the Christ. And the next part of this 
is to not go home and say, wasn't that a wonderful service? The next part is to go out and to carry that sign or that life or whatever it is that God impresses on you to speak it to the people that you come in contact with. I guarantee you, if you are intent and sincere and watchful, in the next 24 hours, you will be given an opportunity to speak that life to someone who doesn't know. But you need to give them the whole story. It's not just love and grace and mercy. It is also damnation and horror if they do not accept the only offer that's being made. So as you're coming forward in just a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to consecrate these elements. And then you come forward. I don't want anybody to come forward until you've had a chance to reflect. Anyone, and Everyone that does come forward, you need to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the only hope that you have. When you take this communion elements, when you eat the bread, when you drink the cup, you remember the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the fact that God is right now welcoming you into his family. But remember, as you walk away from this, and as you leave this service, you carry that message with you. And you may be the only one that someone will hear and understand from. And if you don't, then who will? So let's pray.